Our guest this week is Catherine Winkman, who is an author, facilitator and coach, helping businesses use circular, sustainable approaches to make a better world. She's the founder of Rethink Solutions and the author of the Circular Economy Handbook for Business and Supply Chains. Catherine, welcome. Hi, Catherine. Thank you, Tim. And uh, hello, Maria. I'm delighted to be with you both today. It's great to have you with us. So um, we're obviously going to look at some of these topics and interests that you're particularly passionate about. Before we do that, could you just briefly tell us a bit about your career background and your journey so far for the audience? Sure. I started my career as an industrial engineer in fashion manufacturing and then followed through the industrial engineering part of, of that to join Tesco Logistics at the time in the late 80s when they were developing the first composite multi-temperature distribution system in the UK. So that was really interesting and I got more interested in designing things from scratch instead of measuring what was happening now. I then stayed in logistics and moved to Kellogg's up in Manchester, where my last role was managing the European uh, transport operations, all done through third parties. I then joined a supply chain consultancy and finally DHL supply chain, uh, what was XL at the time. So I had lots of interesting roles, managing projects, designing new systems and so on, but all the time, particularly from the 2000s onwards, I was getting more concerned about sustainability and noticing lack of action really across companies and particularly in supply chains where people seem to be focusing on, uh, you know, tiny things, incremental improvements, blowing up the tires on the truck, doing some driver training, um, you know, perhaps a bit of um, pallet configuration. Uh, and it seemed to me that we were just fiddling while Rome burned. Yeah. yeah. So eventually it dawned on me that if I wanted to make a difference, perhaps I needed to get involved instead of just um, expecting somebody else to stick their head above the parapet. And so I um, decided to go freelance so that I could focus on sustainability and particularly the circular economy. That's interesting, that idea of the moment at which you decide to do something about it. I think we'll probably come back to that i think we will i mean you're absolutely right the, it, so many people see certain things going on in the economy or going on within their work and instead of actually contributing to the solution you know you uh, end up trying to point out something's happening here but you're not necessarily actually as you said sticking mm. your head above the parapet to to make something of it which is yeah which is great. I'm, I'm interested for you, you you sort of said there was a cumulative effect where you were hearing this and then sort of took a decision to be part of the solution what triggered that? Was that a kind of professional drive or was that a sort of personal ethical uh, mindset? What were the contributing factors there? I think I was gradually becoming less comfortable with being part of the problem. And whilst I had an enjoyable, interesting role, it just seemed to me that I was playing a, you know, a tiny part in making big multinational companies, you know, some of whom I'd worked for in the past and enjoyed working for them, but in helping them just make more money, whilst at the same time, you know, people weren't getting the quality of life that they needed, particularly people in, in developing economies. And whilst, you know, we were messing up uh, the very planet that we depend on for our survival, you know, and we, we kind of get cosseted in our offices and cars and um, you know, with, with the stuff that we can have in, in the, um, the Western world. And we forget that everything we have comes from nature. You know, without nature and without living systems, we'd have no rainfall, no clean water, no fresh air, no healthy soils. And, you know, we're kind of depleting all of that 
um, at a rapidly growing rate. Yeah. Um, well, this comes at a cost, doesn't it? I think is what you're saying. Yeah. I think that yeah. in the Western world, we kind of forget or overlook the element of the cost that it has on, because it doesn't usually have the cost on us, does it? It has yeah, it on exactly. other Yeah. So yeah. when I was at um, DHL, I was getting more and more interested in this and decided that I would um, uh, offer to do a talk for um, a invitation only group um, as part of the um, Institute of Logistics and Transport uh, called Leaders in Supply Chain that I was already going along to. And uh, so I kind of I had to do loads of preparation and I'd, I'd been at an event where there was a climate change denier in the room. And really? the whole kind of thing just, yeah, yeah, you know, in part of the group, not, not there as a kind of, um, you know, outside. <laughs> it was part of logistics right. and transport. Yeah. And um, the whole sort of, uh, you know, debate just descended into chaos. Yeah. So on the one hand, I was kind of thinking this isn't right. But on the other hand, I was thinking, well, if I talk about sustainability, I don't want to put out with an awkward question that I can't answer. Yeah. So I did absolutely loads of research, more than I ever did for my MSc thesis, to make sure that, you know, I, I was kind of, uh, I knew what I was going to say. And I also decided not to even cover climate change because there was enough stuff being written about that at the time. And to talk about resource shortages, uh, yeah. to talk about peak oil, to talk about water scarcity, and yeah. all the things that I didn't feel were even... Um, Big, coming onto the agenda this was back in 2010 yeah. um, and so I concentrated on the research around the issues and along the way I was coming across terms like industrial ecology 3d printing circular economy and I didn't really know what any of those were at, yeah. at that point so I you know wrote them all down and parked them till I'd got to the end of what I was doing yeah. so after after that kind of six months or so I was completely depressed and it seemed like the only way forward was that we we're all going to have to have less, you know, yeah. a lower quality of living. And I just couldn't see that working. Nobody's going to buy into that. Yeah. And so, you know, I was kind of thinking, well, <laughs> I won't, I won't say the, um, the swear word, but you know, we're doomed. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and then I went back to look at the words that I'd um, written down. And when I read up about the circular economy and it was one of the very first publications from the Ellen MacArthur foundation, aimed at school children actually 16 year olds and when I read about that suddenly the light went on and it was kind of right there is a solution to this you know yeah. we can have enough for all of us forever yeah all we have to do is just design things differently and set up different systems okay. it's not about having less okay. it's about being intelligent with how we're doing things and taking a different approach where we use things instead of just using them up and then throwing them away so is that for you the, the, the essence of what, what we mean by the circular economy? Because it's a concept that we're hearing more, um, both in kind of specialist, you know, supply chain conversations, but then also more generally in mainstream media. Um, uh, and people use it as a sort of catch-all yeah. phrase, but you don't necessarily hear people dissect it, say, what does this actually mean in reality? So I'm really interested to, to hear what you regard to be the circular economy and particularly its context around businesses and how they operate mm, sure the definition used most often uh is is a bit wordy and technical um from the ellen macarthur foundation and from mckinsey and so on and i i worry that some of that is designed to make you think that only consultants can help you do it but actually it's you know it's pretty simple 
So it's about designing waste and pollution out of the system to begin with. Right. So that all waste becomes food either for another industrial process. So you're recovering the materials or for nature, you know, genuinely to feed nature in terms of compost for soil and so on. So that's the first thing, design out waste and pollution. The second thing is to set up ways to keep products and materials in use for as long as possible. So we're getting more value out of the materials that we've extracted or grown. And we're also getting more value out of the time, energy and knowledge that we're putting into creating those in the first place. So it's about getting more value out of the same thing. Yeah. And then the third principle, which has kind of come along a bit later in some of the definitions, is that we should be focusing on regenerating natural systems. It's not enough now to have something that is sustainable. We need to do more to, to recover from where we are now, you know, improve yeah. biodiversity, improve soil health and so on. So that should be the third thing. And, the, and if we do that, it means we can create long, long-term abundant supplies of resources and that nature can provide all those critical services for us, the clean water, the fresh air, the healthy soils, mm -hmm. and plus all the other services like pollination and pest control. Mm -hmm. So those are, the, those are the three things. Okay. And really it means looking at not just the design of the product itself, but thinking about the business models that support that. If you're going to make a product last longer, how do you get the value out of that? How do you make sure it doesn't just um, you know, damage your cash flow and damage your long-term revenue. Yeah. So what else can you do with the business model to make it work? Right. And then, of course, thinking about the materials. Are they either recycled or genuinely renewable? So to give a simple example, if I'm buying a cotton T-shirt, the cotton for that T-shirt should be able to regrow in the time that I wear it. Okay. And then I listen to youngsters on social media saying, if they've posted a, a selfie of themselves in a new outfit, they won't wear it again. So you come think, yeah, okay, it's not going to grow that quickly. Well, that's <laughs> I, was, I was just going to ask you about um, how do you manage in the circular economy today with consumer behaviors the way that they are, uh, like the selfie generation, you know, taking a picture. And I mean, you just mentioned something. Some people own an outfit and they only own it for one time. You know, so mm. how, how do you change hearts and minds to some degree? uh whilst managing this yes so that that's interesting because it's the industry that's created that you know helped yeah. help to fuel that and yeah. now it's realizing that you know it makes profits but it's you know it's, it's messing up um the planet and not doing their reputations any good and there are a few startups at the moment not the not the bigger companies but a few startups doing things like renting out fashion or creating fashion libraries where people can swap and what's quite interesting is for the fashion rental, it started with the high-end brands. And at the beginning, this was an independent company. And what they'd noticed was that on eBay, um, you know, high-end fashion brands, Gucci and, and uh, Hermes and, and so on were all for sale. But people were worried, worried about the provenance. You know, was I getting the real thing or was I you know, going to risk getting a fake? So they decided they could provide a curated service and verify that these things were genuine um, and also through the app, you know, help you find the kind of things that you might want. And what's happened over the last few years since that's been going, there's, there's two different ones, is that some of the higher end brands have come on board, realizing that actually, as well as the people who can afford to buy the new 
um, you know, thousand dollar handbag, whatever it, leather trousers or whatever. Um, there's another market of people who still value that brand, um, right. and you know, and will buy it. So it's kind of it, it's a way of of um, enhancing the brand without it perhaps ending up being mass market and and yeah. devaluing it. Yeah. So they're kind of um, uh, trying to work together on on that. It's interesting to see how what starts out as a resource challenge is, is already starting to influence brand consumer behavior, um, servitization models, whole conception of what a business model is and what a company is there to do. You know, company mm. A creates, manufactures, sells to customer and that's the end of the relationship. Now there's this more circular relationship. Do you know, do you know what I like about your book is the, the fact that you start out by calling it the circular economy handbook because there's so much talk about the things that need to be done in other words it's important we all know it's important to save the planet we know it's important to to, to look at new business models but not a lot of people talk about how to make that happen mm. and it seems that getting practical guidelines practical advice uh is something that's imperative is that something that you find will help with changing mindsets in specifically in organizations yes i think so and I try and encourage businesses and uh, other organizations to not focus on trying to go from the linear economy that they've got now, take, make and waste to a completely closed loop in one go, because I think people find that it's just too, too overwhelming a challenge. Too daunting, and yeah. so my advice is always to focus either on a major risk. If there's a material that you're worried about, and it could be something where supply is outstripping demand. So lithium in batteries and so on. Um, so is there a material that you're worried about or something that's affected by trade wars, geopolitics, climate disruption? So could you find a replacement for that material, either a recycled version of it or a different, more renewable resource? So that's one thing. And then the other thing is to look at the way that um, consumer awareness is going. So if we think about the recent increase in awareness of plastics. And we have to remember that our generation is the first generation to kind of understand some of these linear economy issues and understand the, the implications of plastic in the oceans and it breaking down into microplastics and so on. This is all really new stuff. Yeah. You know, yes, we've been aware of waste, but the kind of the knock-on effects of that right. we've not yeah. been aware of. So the kind of consumer sentiment and the fact that in the UK, the, the highest number of people ever contributed to a government uh, consultation paper on plastics and waste. You know, 160,000 people got involved and filled in the, the questionnaire on the government website. And that's kind of saying we, we want companies to do something better. So then you look at what's happened with plastic straws and things like that. And you kind of think, well, shouldn't those companies making the straws have been aware that they were already using a petrochemical um, yeah. that, you know, whilst it might degrade, it's going to degrade into microplastics and, you know, you don't have to be, um, uh, you know, using tarot cards or something like that to see the potential. So it's about thinking, how do I make this business future fit? What are the big trends that are going to affect either the materials that I use or what happens to the products at the end of life? Yeah. How do you and see... I think, sorry. sorry. I was just going to say, how do you... How do you... What's your view on how these issues seem to reach tipping points where they become kind of mainstream causes? I mean, 
the science evolves and awareness grows. Uh, but like you said, you know, it's not new that we know that plastics well, exactly. are potentially like, wasteful. Yeah. Yet, for some reason in the UK this year, for example, plastic straws have become... Pariahs. Yeah. A yeah, huge... if you're a pariah, if, you, if, you, if you're a restaurant with serving with a plastic straw. Mm, I mean, yeah. that happened overnight yeah. all of a sudden. And, I, and I'm going to ask the question, but I, I suspect the answer is complex. But I'm interested in your view on what leads to these tipping points in kind of public consciousness and also to a degree where businesses and organizations feel compelled to react to them because big business has been capable of ignoring public sentiment in the past yet mm. now things are different what what's your view on why that might be i think what's happening is the use of social media to raise awareness directly with companies and i think this started um it was, I think it was about 10, 2010, 2012, something like that, with Oxfam and their Behind the Brands campaign. Might have been a bit later than that, but they did a scorecard for the major food brands on mm -hmm. various aspects of their processes, like deforestation and, and transparency and all that kind of stuff, and just scored them and then said why they'd score them, you know, medium or low, and exhorted the public to get behind, you know, encouraging the brands to, to get better. And that evolved into kind of, um, I think Oxfam would be um, highlighting some company that just wasn't playing ball and highlighting one of their brands that was particularly problematic and asking the customers who like that brand to write directly to the manufacturer and say, we really like this, but, and that was all happening on the brand's Facebook page and Twitter and so on. So it was kind of, um, uh, you know, there was a real reputation risk because of it. And that now seems to have moved and the, the NGOs are getting cleverer at how they get the campaigns going. So the recent one on plastics with um, particularly Walker's Crisp. So now they target one company and they make it something really, really specific. And um, what seemed to tip the balance, because there'd already been a petition going with a couple of hundred thousand signatures and Walker's Crisps, part of PepsiCo had come back and said, oh yeah, we'll improve the plastic packaging by 2025. Not good so enough. I just thought yeah. that, that wasn't good enough. And then um, somebody worked out that there was a free post address for, you know, <laughs> customer problems yeah. at Walkers and, and, you know, suggested that it'd be, the easiest thing to do would be just to send your crisp packets back to them. And of course that then, you know, after a couple of weeks of that, that tipped the balance. Yeah. And so Walkers then had to find a solution. And what they've done is partnered with TerraCycle a company that recycles plastic into useful products like park benches and so on. But I was sitting there thinking, well, if walkers had done that at the earliest signs of that campaign, they'd have probably had more choice and probably got a better deal with TerraCycle. Yeah, I'm yeah. suspecting now that's, that's become quite an expensive way to deal with your waste plastics. Do you think, do you think now with the power of social media uh, and with, like you say, the NGOs getting clever, probably because a lot of the people that are running these social campaigns, social media campaigns, are millennials, more digitally savvy, more social media. Yeah. Does that put the situation where it's more of a David versus Goliath situation, more so than ever in history, uh, it, against larger businesses? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure what you mean by David and Goliath. It, it was David and Goliath, wasn't it? That, you it know, was, but that's what I'm saying. It's, yeah. it's almost now the situation where the, it was David and Goliath. Now it's almost like an even hand where these, yeah. these NGOs and these younger people and these millennials now are not up against a big, big people in a big fight. They actually yeah. have more I of an even... Reach, reach and influence have been democratized yeah, by that... social media and new channels. So 
Yeah, and I think it's all it's all playing out in the in the very um, advertising space of the brand. So I think take to take the David and Goliath analogy, um, you know, now now David's got got a real um, good slingshot straight at Goliath through um, you know Instagram, Twitter, and and Facebook, and the fact that it's it's your very customer base. It's not somebody, you know, an MEP or or some campaigner. Um, who's not really part of your target market. It's your very target market, the youngsters who you want to carry on buying your products for decades. Yeah. Um, so the potential for, you know, brand damage. Yeah. I wonder um, how many manufacturing supply chain operations leaders are, have these kind of antennae switched on at the moment. Are they looking for that custom feedback loop for their part of the business? Because I think historically they probably thought, Social media is around brand and marketing and sales. Mm. Social media sits here. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't necessarily impact. Yeah. And it sits in this difficult okay, well, box. Let's, let's look at an example, which is pretty timely for where we are right now. The Iceland commercial. You know, yeah. there's, there's a commercial going around for those people that are looking at this and watching this from somewhere else all around the world. Although it has reached recognition around the world, there's a Christmas commercial that was put up by a supermarket brand called mm. Iceland here in the UK that's been banned because it was too political. And I think... If, if, if they'd shown this Iceland commercial, I bet you not many people would have noticed it, but because they banned it, it's all over social media. It's all over, I've, I've got relatives mm. in Latin America that are reposting this, you know? Yeah. This, that's how much of a reach this social media is. So therefore, what protection should a supply chain director have? Should they have their antennae, like Tim says, into the world of, this could affect me if I don't, this isn't gonna go away. Is that, would you agree? I would agree. And I think it's not just about keeping an eye on social media. That tells you what's coming to the attention of the consumer. But everybody in food and cosmetics manufacturing should be aware of the massive issues around palm oil, for instance. Um, and the fact that even the palm oil sustainability certification has been accused of corruption and all that kind of stuff. So if you're already aware of that, you already know about the risk. It's just a question of, you know, how quickly it, it might or might not get onto the agenda. But if you're really thinking long term about how do I make this business future fit, then you should already be having that as a high risk um, material and be thinking about, you know, how can we eradicate this or make sure that we can tell a genuinely good story about where this is coming from and that it's yeah. not caused deforestation and it's providing jobs in areas where jobs are hard to come by or you know whatever the appropriate story is yeah um but i think it's really exciting that you know something gets banned and then and then there's a massive campaign mm. um because people are outraged that something good was happening one company was sticking their head above the parapet and trying to lead the industry and was being kind of squashed back down mm. and i think you know, the, the positive publicity for iceland on that and the plastics has been brilliant and should be a warning to the other supermarkets that they need to catch up quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I would say it's a warning, not just to supermarkets, it's a warning to anyone that they need to make their businesses future fit. Like you say, Catherine, yeah. uh, that they've got to think about all the elements of, uh, of, of what they do within their supply chains, within their entire value chains. Let's talk about something else that you mentioned, which also almost contradicts to some degree this consumer behavior. So you've got consumers that are very keenly aware of sustainability and the, the impact that some of these things have on the environment. 
yet they're the ones that are rushing out to buy the newest and latest uh, gizmo or gadget or jacket or what have you. How do you pair these two together? How do they, uh, and what can a supply chain director do? Because it's to some degree almost pr different pressures, right? They it's, have I mean, yeah, like consumers are allowed to be completely hypocritical, yet, yet companies are kind of held to account for those for those perceived I mean, standards. It's a fairly unenviable position to some degree that they have to... Well, consumer uh, demand is dictating, you know, I want the new phone or a gizmo or a gadget. Yeah, so or the companies I, want respond. Same, I want same day delivery, so therefore I want more logistics service. Yet, on the, on the other hand, an organization is trying to pursue a sustainability agenda and move... So, so do you notes. talk about that or do you mention this sort of, to some degree, a bit of hypocrisy from the consumer side of things? Yeah, I think it's... There's a few interesting aspects to that. The first one being that consumers are only demanding it because it was there in the first place. You know, if Amazon didn't offer same day delivery, nobody else would have been under pressure to do it. Yeah. And, we're now and, and if, Apple, yeah. if Apple weren't on the one hand, creating a new smartphone that looks very different from the last one. And there's some interesting videos on iFixit where they disassemble smartphones and you know there was i can't remember whether it was um which brand it was but there was one that had um two speaker grills and yet when they took the cover off which was quite hard to do when they took the cover off there was only one speaker so the speaker grills implied it was stereo but actually it wasn't and then you know apple have been fined for then releasing the new smart smartphone and then doing software upgrades to all the other phones that actually slowed them down so that just nudges you into thinking oh yeah i really do need a new phone so you've got that one that going on on the one hand and i've tried to kind of look at this you know the the linear economy take make waste or you might even call it a throughput economy because it's designed to maximize throughput and what are the factors that create that in the first place and cause it to speed up over time if you like so the, you know planned obsolescence and um consumers willingness to put up with short life cycles and being very happy to buy the new one how does that happen and it's all about this push to increase revenue so the obvious answer to that is well i need to sell more well how do i do that well more customers but when everybody's got an iphone how do oh, i need a new one and i think a lot of the hidden costs involved in doing that well they're not they're not hidden but they're difficult to work out whether you get return on investment so first of all the development of the new product and the, the risks involved in, in that, you know, if something doesn't work perfectly, how much testing have you got to do? How much investment in R&D to, to, to improve the next one? What about all the obsolescence costs of the old ones that were left when you re released a new one? Because they don't sell out first, do they? They've got this timetable. What about all the costs of acquiring those new customers and persuading people to buy the next one? All those costs are massive. And the alternative circular model would be an upgrade system and with most smartphones a lot of the developments that the improvements now are maybe little component improvements but mostly it's about the software mm -hmm. so the whole thing of getting an upgrade is really easy so i've got a, um, a fairphone um, which um, i'll just take the cover off so it's a, um, a modular um, unit i can take the whole thing apart with just one screwdriver the instructions on how to do that are all online and fairphone released their first upgrade which was a better camera lens so for 30 quid i could buy the camera lens module 
which went from you know six megapixels in the original to 12 and just swap it in in five minutes with one screwdriver and so that makes me more likely to kind of be loyal to Fairphone. I'm getting the, the newest technology. I've not had to learn how to new, buy a new phone. I've not wasted anything. Yeah. And I kind of feel like I've got some um, more ownership in it because I've actually yeah. upgraded it myself. And your relationship with that organization and your sense of their brand must be really different to how well, you're the committed. average Apple customer feels like it's this kind of like servant master relationship yeah. we're at every win yeah and you're also committed to that brand because they're obviously speaking to something that's important to you mm. uh yeah then beyond maybe you're willing to make some sacrifices on some mm. things you know maybe you don't have exactly to yeah yeah, the yeah. camera in the world you yeah. know what i mean not that i mean not that we want to be photographers at that level yeah that's interesting i mean i can see i can see that that kind of product and that more like a kind of subscription mm. modular model mm. will be will be popular with me, I, I wouldn't call it a sort of demographic set in particular. Can you see those kind of things taking hold in the mainstream though? Um, how can yes. they scale I, out? Yeah, I can. Millennials already are not bothered about ownership. And if we think about things logically, why do we want to own something that just depreciates? Looking at cars, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, the way to buy a car was either HP, which was kind of, you know, not didn't feel very nice way to buy it. Um, there was a bit of a kind of stigma around it um, or to buy it outright and have to, you know, save up for it or get a bank loan. Yeah. But now everybody has, well, not everybody, but lots of people have fixed price contracts that include the maintenance and so on. And people are quite comfortable with that. And why do we want to own something that depreciates by 25, 30% the day after we've bought it? And the same thing with, um, you know, clothes and technology and so on. So I think the the behaviours and the, the kind of psychology around that is starting to change, and particularly with millennials who are just more interested in having the stuff that they need. They don't see the need to own car, own a car if you're in a city and you can you can just rent a car. Yeah. And that's been an interesting opportunity for BMW. So BMW bought a car sharing app and rebranded it into Drive Now. And you can rent a, um, a mini, a kind of mid-sized BMW and a high-end one in most cities, you know, in, in Germany and other uh, European cities. And the reason they did that was to enable existing BMW owners when they were traveling on business or a holiday or whatever, to be able to rent a BMW when they arrived at the airport and rent something that they felt comfortable in and that, you know, the whole ethos of the, you know, the quality of the brand and so on yeah. matched up to their needs. Yeah. But what they, what they found was that it opened up a whole new market. Suddenly, people who didn't own a BMW were using this DriveNow app to, to hire a BMW. So suddenly, you're into a new market and able to touch new, new customers in different ways. So I think that's really interesting. And the other aspect of the service and subscription model is staying much closer to your customers. As you said, I've now got a different relationship with my phone provider. I can give them feedback, but Fairphone can find out in a much better way what's working and not working for the customers, which components are likely to fail first and how could they improve that. You know, they can get the components back and, and work out what's got, gone wrong. So it enables them to build a much more robust product as well as build close relationships with customers and find out when, you know, things might be getting a bit old and tired, what do you want out of the new one and so on. 
So it sounds like a more collaborative relationship rather than that sort of vendor customer relationship. Well, There's more exchange of information. Even an adversarial, yeah. Yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to give car- another example of the, the, the different relationship, looking at what Patagonia do. So um, Patagonia for a long time have offered a repair service. So if anything breaks on your Patagonia, um, you know, climbing equipment or even your clothing, you send it back, get a free repair. So I'd already sent a 10 year old fleece gilet back when the zip broke and it came back a couple of weeks later, brand new zip. Um, And they recognize that particularly for the climbing kit and things like that and and rucksacks, you might already be on an expedition or an adventure and not want to send it back. So they wanted to give people the ability to repair things themselves. And they partnered with a, it's a, an online global platform called iFixit. That's basically people who are really into repairing things, working out how to do it. You know, the latest iPhone, as soon as it comes out, somebody will be doing a product teardown and putting videos and scripts and diagrams online of, of uh, how to repair it. So they partnered with iFixit and said, can you script all the repairs that we do, the common repairs and, and translate those into user instructions, do some little videos and so on. And one thing they were, Patagonia were worried about was if we make it so easy to do the repairs, are we implying that it's likely to go wrong? You know, if we kind of publicize this, so they were quite worried. And so they um, put some money into doing some consumer surveys. And what they found was exactly the opposite that consumers would feel much more reassured that the brand would stand behind the product and repair it than the opposite. And they were more likely to buy a Patagonia product because they were reassured that if anything went wrong, they could either fix it themselves or send it back. And so there's all sorts of new insights coming from these new models that can help companies think about how that can really make their business more resilient and future-proof it. Yeah, I mean, the examples you've given there are clearly examples of opportunity and innovation and change and progress. But do you, when you talk to organisations, do you think they probably look upon the circular economy and sustainability somehow as obligations, that it's likely to increase the cost of their raw materials? Have they grasped the idea that actually if they're if they don't do this, agile in their thinking and if they are prepared to rethink their business models, that this could be they, tremendous opportunity. They could actually capitalise on opportunity within circular economies mm. rather than push up their cost base. I think that's starting to happen. I think it's very much dependent on the business itself and um, you know how how inclined some of the key players within the business are to look outside and look either at what your competitors might be doing and whether that's a threat to you what some of the new startups are doing and most of the examples i see of circular economy approaches are with smes and startups Mm -hmm. so it proves to me you don't need a big r d budget and the circular economy can create a viable business so i think there's the kind of external threat of somebody else getting into your space and transforming the market I think there's the, you know, what, what are the cost implications? What are the legislation implications? What about geopolitics? Are we going to have access to these resources? Are we going to be forced to take a product stewardship approach and either put some money into recycling at the end of life or to have a take back scheme? And if we're not ready for that and already thinking 
you know, yeah, bring it on, put some legislation in place because I'm ready. And I, and that means I get my resources back and yet my competitors aren't ready. So I think doing the usual, you know, pestle um, strategy approach of looking at the political, the economic, the social and all, all the other risks and thinking, okay, what's likely to affect me first and how can I use circular approaches to make that work for my business, you know, so that I can, I can be more agile, more resilient, more cost competitive and position myself much better for the longer term. So is that your sort of recommended starting point for organisations to start to make changes? It's, it's a kind of a period of self-awareness and reflection around what they do, but also what, what else is going on in the industry. Is that the place to start? Because well, I guess I, I would, it's getting I, into that journey. I would even is. argue, is there sort of a benchmark? Is there something that they can do to sort of gauge internally right now where they are along the lines of this how you know before you even start to reflect you need to maybe assess uh mm. how how are we going to transform our business into this sort of circular economy but where are we right now against uh that benchmark does that exist yes it does something called the future fit business benchmark okay so it's an open sourced uh, benchmarking process it's based on four simple criteria that were developed i think in the 70s by a canadian organization called the natural step and it's it, it includes both um, the use of resources and the social impact so it means we shouldn't be digging up materials out of the ground in an unsustainable way we shouldn't be putting waste and pollution into the natural systems we shouldn't be doing anything that destroys communities or, or impacts. So if I think about the fashion industry and all the pollution from the dyeing and textile manufacturing process that's going straight into the rivers that people are using to drink from, wash in, grow their food, that kind of impact. So these very simple criteria and the benchmark has um, a multi-stage process to take you through the entire supply chain and let you assess where you're up to against each of those. And I would advise starting with a, you know, a one page version of that. And that's what I use in some of my workshops. So it's five stages of the supply chain and, and the four criteria and just do a gut feel um, of where your company and your um, supply chain partners are on that process. And then you can kind of dive into the ones that came up red. Yeah. And I did this um, last year in a, um, uh, a textile industry, a textiles and fashion industry um, conference. And so we looked at the textile supply chain for a number of different fibers. And these were people who knew textiles and everybody was really surprised how little they knew about the other parts of the supply chain. So if you thought about something like bamboo, which is touted as an eco fiber, mm. it's a fantastic environmentally friendly crop because it needs no pesticides it's you know it's not an annual it's it's um perennial doesn't need much water and so on so it grows really well but the process of converting it into a textile fiber is in the main absolutely horrendous there's about one percent of it that's produced sustainably and the rest is absolutely awful wow. with health issues for the workers and so on and so you could be looking at, you know, if you only looked at the research in, in detail, you might think, oh yeah, bamboo, everybody's saying that's sustainable, I'll, I'll use that. But when you start to just 
lift up the stone a little bit and look underneath, you realize what the other impacts are in the supply chain. This is the big challenge, right? Because people leading businesses have complexity wherever they turn, uh, whether that's new technology, whether that's you know, global factors impacting their business, whether that's the, you know, balancing profitability versus sustainability. So how, how can they kind of navigate their way through uh, an agenda? So many unknowns Yeah, well. like you, you think you're doing the right thing, like you use the, the bamboo example. Yeah, chances are you're not unless you've happened upon one of these, the 1% of ethically uh, mm. juiced. Well, like the example, for instance, with um, uh, green, what's it, cobalt. You know, the use of cobalt for all of these uh, eco-friendly sort of cars and what have you for their batteries. I mean, uh, some of the, th the risks fa risk factors with using cobalt, yeah, the, mines, the way that yeah. they're depleting the mines, the workers' rights, mm. so forth. I mean, it seems as though there are a lot of decisions that look good on the surface, like you say. Um, but I, I think going back to something we said originally, mindset, right? So mm. how does someone who is running a supply chain today how do they navigate these very complex uh, waters at the moment to try to make the right decisions uh, with competing against certain things? Pushed like, and pulled by pushed and multiple different locations. Yeah. 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 The, the Future Fit Business Benchmark allows you to, to look in detail. I think starting off with a high-level view and then thinking about, you know, what are, what are the highest risks that we have now and starting to explore those to look at the alternatives, but then making sure that you don't just quickly tick a box and think, oh, we've got an alternative to that, we'll do, you know, we'll do this. So then doing your research. So start with something that's either a big risk now or something that you could do quite easily just to prove the concept of the circular economy. So changing one material or changing a business model for one tiny market sector or doing it as a trial, and then look at the results of that and learn from that before you make the next change. So I think it's not about rushing in and, and um, you know, lifting every stone up and then being a bit lost as to where you start. It's starting with a considered view that you can sell back to your stakeholders. Investors are getting much more concerned now about risks around scarcity of resources, water scarcity and so on, and not wanting companies to um, you know, bank their business future on something that's not going to be so you can go back to your investors and kind of say, these are the three things, say, that we're looking at. Um, and we're going to spend a bit of time looking at what the issues are, what the alternatives are, and then we'll come back um, with a proposal. Um, so that, you, you know, you're doing it in a considered way, as you would with any other thing. If, if we had run out of a resource or if a new, um, a new material, wonder material comes up, everybody starts to look at it. They don't just switch immediately. They look at the pros and cons and the cost implications of that and so on. Yeah. But I think it's just about starting somewhere and using some, you know, low risk changes to learn from and help sell the concept to the skeptics within the business mm -hmm. um, and then move on from there. And getting some of the, the younger people in the business engaged in that can get them excited about the possibilities. You know, everybody really wants to feel like they're making a better world. Yeah. So if you can do that within your business, it can really help get people engaged um, with taking the company forward and, and being proud of what you do. Um, well, to that's very good practical, practical advice. What, one question with regards to the circular economy again. 
how much appetite do you think there is within industry, within leaders in industry, to embark upon this journey, given that there seems to be appetite from the consumers to embark upon this journey and to demand that of the industry? I think the appetite is growing. It's great to see that groups like the World Economic Forum are getting on board and they have a specific project stream to accelerate the circular economy and lots of businesses engaging with that. Government policy around the world is starting to move in that direction. In China, across Europe with the new uh, recent EU policy, countries like Sweden um, doing tax breaks for repairs, that kind of thing to, to start to nudge companies towards that kind of behavior. And I think it's, for me, what's exciting is this number of startups and SMEs really getting involved and they're more maneuverable and able to do this. And I think all these stories that are coming out and, and I can't even keep up with the number of examples that I see now. Um, I've got 500 odd case studies in, in my own personal library. Um, and um, I only add to those if I, if I kind of, you know, want to make a new slide because there's just too many to keep on top of. So, and it's starting to appear in mainstream media, a lot more like the FT or BBC, The Economist and so on. So I think it's starting to, you know, the phrase is starting to appear in people's um, uh, earpieces and podcasts and so on. And companies are starting to look at it. And if they see either disruption from outside or their competitors experimenting with this, it's going to encourage them to look at the opportunities. And I just think it's this mindset change from thinking about sustainability as being, you know, a hair shirt and something that just costs you yeah. money to thinking longer term and thinking, how can I use this to create a better business that uses its resources wisely, provides really good conditions for its suppliers to flourish. You know, there's no point in making it unsustainable for, for smallholder farmers to keep supplying you in the future. You're just gonna run out of supplies. And so companies like Nestle and Unilever are doing massive things further up the supply chain to help educate people, to help make the whole farming process much more sustainable and to protect their own sources of supply. You know, it's not just a CSR nice story. Yeah. It's, it's at the heart of the business. How do we keep going? Yeah, it's, it's great to hear that the positive angle of it. Um... Well, the benefits could be quite significant. I mean, you know, long term, you know, for, for uh, retain, retaining clients, reputation and you know, doing the, Brand, the right thing. I, I think it would be safe to say probably, and you might agree that in the near future, or certainly in the future, companies that don't embrace this kind of circular economy could lose out. Definitely. And there's a lot of research now showing that consumers, as well as wanting experiences instead of stuff, want to have relationships with companies that have a, a purpose that, you know, yeah. that are doing something for good. They're not prepared to pay more, more for that, but that gives you an opportunity, doesn't it? If you can do something better for the world and not charge the customer more, perhaps by providing it as a subscription service or providing an upgrade instead of a new product, that kind of thing, then you're taking that, that space and being the company that, that consumers want to buy from instead of resisting change and ending up being flooded with yeah. empty crisp packets appearing through free post. Yeah. And I think in, until some of these examples become the mainstream, then clearly 
for the established players, there's a massive opportunity there. Uh, it's it's whoever wouldn't it be can great change to be the, them. Wouldn't it be great to be the one that leads the, the pack, yeah. you know? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay, well, Catherine, I think we've, we've covered quite a lot. Yeah, we've covered a lot of ground, and and it's it's really mm. pleasing that we're kind of ending on such a positive note and reinforcing the idea that this can get value and opportunity because you you said it can seem like an obligation, uh, and that's not necessarily a way to drive it through a business and create this cultural change that that's needed. So, so that's incredibly encouraging, and and thanks so much for sharing some of those examples because I think it's, it's enlightened me around some of these opportunities. Absolutely. And I think, I think you gave some really good practical advice for uh, companies that are looking to embrace this new sort of uh, way of thinking anyway, mm. that uh, it's not about taking on a big daunting task yeah. of changing everything, but looking at things individually, benchmarking yourself, seeing what they can do and maybe doing a little bit more research. Yeah. Thank you sure. very much for joining us, Catherine. Yeah, thanks, really appreciate Catherine. it. This is fantastic. And hopefully over the course of the next couple of uh, weeks, months, we will see more stories like yeah. this. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me along.